Hello, everybody. My name is Gary Fowler, and it is great to have you here today on GSD Presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. And it is with great honor that I introduce my friend, Greg Shepard, the CEO and founder of Boss Capital Partners, serial entrepreneur, angel investor, Forbes author, keynote, and all around nice guy. So, with that, Greg, it's great to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the kind words. I, I really do appreciate it. So, you know, it's it's amazing the things that you've done. So I was looking at Pepper Jam and and I mean, it's like so in three years, you you, you know, put some deals together. Greg, what's the you know, your entrepreneurial journey like? I mean, you've done Ad Assured, you know, you've done the Bay Enterprise Marketing stuff. What's what's a, what's Greg's journey like? I started uh, when I was like 19 and um, I started building smaller companies. And then when the dot-com came out in the nineties, I started building software companies. Um, so earlier I, I did a biotech company an applied environmental biotechnology company. I sold to a public company out of Canada. I did a, a bank when I was uh, in my early twenties. Um, you did a bank? <clears throat> yeah, I started a, a, uh, a, a, a bank that was a lender for, uh, we took lines of credit from bigger banks and sold them to smaller banks, um, basically, you know, and we would buy loans from them, all different types of loans and stuff like that. So I was a wholesale rep before that. And then I decided to go off and start my own thing. Uh, and then went from that into biotechnology and then from biotechnology into, uh, website, you know, building websites, but then we real, we were trying to sell hosting actually. And, but there was no websites yet. So we had to sell websites in order to get hosting. So we built that, that one sold to Quest Communications. Um, and then I went into online advertising, did a bunch of online advertising plays, um, built uh, affiliate traction, which was ended up being acquired by eBay as part of a $925 million it won four private equity awards for transactions between 250 and a billion. We bought, we ended up buying uh, 14 companies and then we sold all of them except for like four. And then they, and then we bought another one of my companies and we merged that all together and then did a big turnaround there. And then that ended up selling last year. Um, <clears throat> so it was a quite a, Quite a journey, you know, to, to build that whole thing. So, I mean, what's the biggest deal you've ever done? That one. Yeah, I'm not like you're you've done bigger deals than me. I've done nine hundred. No, no, Greg, I'm a country boy. I'm just a country boy. I happen to be <laughs> on a regional management team, a click stuffer. I'm just a country boy from Pennsylvania. But you know, I admire you. It's amazing to go for, you know, the things that you've done, a bank to, you know, aggregating these companies together and really changing the fabric. And now with boss and I mean it's just so with Pepper Jam, is that where you aggregated them together and you sold them off separately? Out of well, Pepper yeah, Pepper Jam, we kept. So Magento was one of them that ended up selling for $1.9 billion. Um, and uh, there was a whole bunch of little ones that we sold off. And then we rolled all what was left over together to create what was Pepper Jam. Uh, and then, and that was a huge project. I mean, it was a, <laughs> I mean, it was a, monster situation, you know, um, and there was a, there was a lot of people involved, some really amazing people. And uh, it, it did really well. And then when Pepper Jam, after I was done with that and I was able to sort of step out, um, I 
decided to go into politics for a little while. So I spent three years working with congressional candidates and senators and stuff. And then I realized that politics was just, I wasn't going to be able to make a difference there because I wanted to give back. And it was just like a giant shitstorm, And I just couldn't even, it was just insane. You know, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. So then I decided, well, you know, I've been working on this boss thing, but it was just for me. I just used it for myself. And, you know, so I could build businesses faster. You know, I was just, I wanted to be able to do it faster and quicker and let, make less mistakes and use less money to do it and stuff. And, uh, and then I decided, well, what if I just started sharing that? So I just started sharing it with people. And then that ended up getting me the book deal with Forbes. And then the book deal led to Covey, you know, Stephen Covey's son, David Covey, doing a curriculum, which led into the school and the universities. And uh, I mean, it's become a quite a deal, but it's all to help entrepreneurs. Um, I came from nothing and I found that 4% of people have the ability to get out from underneath nothing and have some something of value. 98% of them do it through a windfall and the three windfalls are, believe it or not, lottery, inheritance, and starting a business. 75% of them do it by starting a business. So I figured I could really help by helping the 90% failure rate uh, and trying to improve the number of entrepreneurs that succeed by teaching everybody what I did. You know, I've done 14 and all of them have exited. So it's, you know, that's kind of like what happened, you know, is all with the the idea of trying to help. So so you help. Now, what do you look like? How do you, you know, you got all these companies together. How do you determine who you want to partner with? Now, do you have a core team or I know we've talked to your partner before, but how do you do that? Like, how do you make and say, that's the person I want to work with on this project? What do you do? This this time it was a little different because I had been doing this now for 25 years. So basically, I just went and got all the best people that I had worked with over the 25 years. So mm -hmm. CEOs, that uh, CMOs, CTOs, just everybody I could find that I'm still bringing some in. Actually, I had to I had to actually wait until Pepper Jam sold again before I could get access to some of the people that I really wanted to get. Um, so we're we're pulling in all of the best people that I had. Uh, along the way that have used boss, you know, because some of these people have used boss for 17, 18 years. So they best boss stands for business operating support system. So people yeah, know. tell the audience a little bit about it, because I'm sure they're curious. We have startups and entrepreneurs literally from around the world, from Africa to Indonesia, to Europe, to Russia, to Belarusia, Ukraine. I mean, what is it? Tell, tell us a little bit about it. Oh yeah, sure. So basically uh, it, what I did is I was throughout the last, the 20 years, I was studying ways that people built businesses and different, what I call operating systems. So things like Six Sigma and Lean and Agile and all the different flavors in between all these different things. And in that process, I spent a, a great deal of time trying to test different things. So I would test something out for like a year and then I would run something else for a year. And I found out that some of these operating systems, pieces of them work, but everything was very stage appropriate. So one of the big epiphanies I had was developing a life cycle of a startup from vision all the way out to an exit. And then I started studying where are the critical points. And so you start to learn that failure happens, the 90% fail in the first five years, basically. Mm -hmm. And then so I wanted to figure out why they were failing and when they were failing. And so I collected all this data at five people working on that for five years and then took boss, which I did before, and then started modifying pieces of it 
to wrap around and make sure we focused on the areas where people were actually failing, right? Where they would just tumble um, and then built out a program. And now, and I was just speaking, I was just going around to universities and talking to MBA classes and accelerators and stuff early. And then it got a lot of attention from the universities and then it turns into a curriculum and that's kind of what it is. But it, so part of the concepts are, you know, starting with the end in mind. So basically, what I found is that the failure rates are excel if the entrepreneur and the investors don't have an end goal in mind when they start the first time, right? So when companies acquire other companies, they're, they're doing it for some sort of a strategic reason, right? So mm -hmm. the majority of the time you get the highest multiples when you sell a business to somebody that's optimizing what you've built. So you have companies that buy companies to make or save money. Right. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine sold Amazon Robotics, their thing, that's a save money, right? They got rid of headcount and they use the robots versus buying a company to increase your revenue. On the increased revenue side, the equation is pretty simple. If you think that these companies have, you know, maybe they have 100,000 customers and they're paying, you know, they've already paid the customer acquisition cost, right? So their CAC to LTV ratio is flatlined. Mm -hmm. So in order to grow their revenue by using their existing customers, which they've already paid for to get that CAC to LTV up, they have to increase the lifetime value. And they do that by buying other products that sell to that customer. Mm -hmm. So going back to where I started, if you start out and you don't make sure that your ideal customer profile and persona are the same as your acquirer mm -hmm. and you get down the line, you realize that you're going to have a big problem and you may be spending money in the areas you don't want to be spending, getting customers that you shouldn't be getting because they don't have, they don't like them, they don't match up with their. So you have to start out by saying, these are the people that are going to buy my business. This is what they need. You think of them the same way you think of a customer, right? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't build a product without having a customer. Well, why would you build a business without having a buyer and a profile so you understand exactly what they want? That whole thing, when I started to talk about that, got a lot of interest. People were like, oh my God, I've had a lot of, deals that fall apart, you know, three rounds, four rounds down the line because I can't get a buyer. Well, that's because, you know, you have to plan that in the very beginning, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you think that, you know, somebody's going to buy a company for top line, they're going to buy a company for bo bottom line, they're going to buy it for market share. Understanding who the buyers are, why they're going to buy you, allow you then for the next five years to build the business to suit a series of different buyers that have the same ideal acquirer profile. Mm -hmm. And that was a fundamental piece because now you can track and trend your company towards that the whole time, which then fixes the investor confidence issue, right? Because mm -hmm. investors are looking at, they're going, okay, we're trending towards this, we're trending towards this. And we know these companies have the behavior, you can go to Crunchbase and see what the acquisition behavior pattern is of acquirers, right? You see that they buy a company, they take a break, they buy three companies, they take a break, whatever the scenario is, and you can see their strategy. Right. Are they doing a walled garden? Are they trying to add revenue? Because you can just do a basic research to figure out what they're after. And so all of this is in the North Star, which is the beginning of boss. The rest of it is wrapped around that concept, right? Mm -hmm. Stage appropriate growth in line with the North Star, which aligns with your where you're heading to in the first place. I tell people, I'm like, you know, if it, basically you need a GPS, right? And when you have a GPS, you have to know where you are and you have to know where you're going. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, I'm like, would you leave house to go on vacation without having any bags packed because you don't know where you're going? I mean, you know, that's why would you do that with a business, 
right? You, you start out understanding where you're going and when you're intending on getting there and what the outcome is going to be like when you get there. And then you build the business, which is ready, aim, fire versus ready, fire, aim. So, you know, that's like, that was the beginning of it. And that's how I was able to I mean, they used to, businesses used to take me like 10 years mm -hmm. and I can build and sell a business now in two. So, Wow, that's incredible. Two years. So, Greg, I got a question for you. What do you do? And I had this happen to me with Eva, our company. We went from a B2C model and we did our customer development, et cetera. Got a lot of uh, customers, but it just wasn't the right fit. And I had to pivot the company and move to a B2B model. How does it work? Because I visualized, you know, Google-like search for the personal cloud. What happens when you pivot midstream and you have a visualization, these are the customers that are going to buy you. And it really changes from a Google to a workday or, you know, uh, Atlassian. How do you do that? How do you incorporate that into the model? Yeah. So that that's the cool thing about boss is that because it's modular and there's a lot of, it's very prescriptionary, but there's a lot of freedom in between. So you think of it as like a bowling alley with the guards up, mm -hmm. right? So, you, you see the pins at the end, you know where you're going, but you've got guards. So if you want to pivot, you just go in, you change the North Star, and then you your whole the rest of boss will just wrap around that, right? So it, I tell people, I'm like, whatever you put in the North Star, that's where you're going to go. Like, it will take you to that place. So be very careful what you put in there. And if you want to pivot, you'll, you'll be able to pivot just by going back and changing those parameters, you know, because it's... it's if you follow the directions, the logic of the system and the directions, it will, it just takes you, it just guides you there, you know, just like a GPS. You know, you're well, following it, the GPS. It's funny because last week I had a four-star admiral, uh, the number two guy in the vice chairman, of the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, yeah. Bill Owen, and he told me the same thing. And then Per Wimmer, who works with Richard Branson, founding astronaut of Virgin, you know, uh, multiple, multiple companies, I've heard this many, many times that yeah. you know, you've, and, and I talked about on a TEDx is that you need to visualize where you want to go as a company and people don't do that. They just throw stuff against the wall, if you know what I mean, and see, mm -hmm. what but that's not the way to do it. You got to set your goals and sites and move towards that direction, you know, and have with some purpose or you never get there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, if you, if somebody says, you know, you want to lose some weight, you know, and somebody goes, oh, it's diet and exercise. That's not enough, right? And it's not enough to say, okay, what specifically and when do you eat and what specifically do you exercise and when do you do it? You still have to, it comes down to it when you're sitting there in front of a donut, you know, or, you know, you're, you're saying, oh, should I go for you're making me hungry right now, Greg? I know, right? I mean, so I'm, I struggle with weight. I right? like so, <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, so it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's that kind of discipline, right? But it helps when you have a guide, you know, when you have a, a Sherpa kind of walking you through this, this process. And it helps when somebody's like, look, this is going to be hard. And the person's like, this is really hard. And it's like, yeah, that's normal, you know, or, you know, hey, watch out because a lot of people fail right here at this point, mm -hmm. you know, so it really, it really matters to, it really matters. It's hard to explain, but when you look at the data, if you really dive into the data and you look at why people are failing and then you look at the, the details of that, I mean, this is a, this was a huge project, right? We did 
there's 120,000 pages of data and then there's, you know, 1200 in-person interviews. And, you know, I interviewed the Navy SEALs. I interviewed the first fighting wing at the Air Force, CIA, you know, police, fire department. I was trying to find out what people do in process and what people do in emergencies, mm-hmm. you know, to, to master sort of this, this thing. Um, and so I went to the places that have the most organized way of going about execution. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the places that have the most organized places uh, or ways of handling a long-term goal like the military. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it, it's been, uh, it's been a, a, you know, hell of a journey, but it really, I mean, it works, you know, I mean, like you, the, yeah, I mean, you could talk to anybody that's used boss and they're like, Oh, this is amazing. You know, this is the most incredible thing I've ever used. Um, and the thing that's really cool about it is I, I like to think of it as being open source. And so what that means is that, because what I noticed is that a lot of the other operating systems, they sort of like, they're still good, but they fall out of favor, mm-hmm. right? So you've been around as long as I do. So you, you've seen these things come in and they're like the hot thing at the, at the time and then something else comes in and then it kind of falls out of favor. But those things have value. So you need to include them. But in order to make sure that the thing is sustainable and keeps up with the speed of business, it has to be open, meaning people need to be able to give their input, mm-hmm. right? And say, you know, look, I've used this, but this is taking too much time and people will just start doing it. Or, you know, this is shelfware and we find ourselves putting a lot of energy into this and then never using it again. And so there's a lot of this like sort of tuning that you're doing to the, to the system mm-hmm. so that it's, encompassing the feedback that you're getting from people that are using it at all different uh, levels of the life cycle of, of a startup. You know, it's, it's pretty, it, it's really cool. I mean, I still learn all the time. We just added war gaming to it. Um, oh, that's which, cool. <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. We did, you know, one of the things that uh, I found and I started the uh, first accelerator in Russia and when we started, I co-founded and one of the things that we found is that, you know, the, in different cultures, people act differently, right? And one of the things that some of the cultures, they uh, they have this uh, negative attitude, right? It's, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe, I hope. And it's not like, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of mentality. And, you know, the positive, I mean, we could talk about that. But, you know, I found that once we start to inject some positive energy, and I've heard that a lot, too, into the situation, because guess what? It ain't easy. A startup, there's ups and downs and ins and out. And the thing is, you need to stay positive to be able to map your way through it to get to that goal, to get to that end game. You know, and using your GPS, it's like having clouds. You know, you got to rely on the GPS and understand. You know, don't be screwing around. Focus on where it's going to take you. Right. Exactly. So we have like KPIs, we have valuation drivers, and we have everything built into this thing. So somebody can not just execute, but see how that is actually leading them a step in the direction of where they want to go. You know, so, and to your point about, I say people need a handful of things, focus, drive, enthusiasm, discipline, and optimism, right? Five things. And, you know, focus, like, of course, right? You have to focus or you're not going to get anything done. Drive is essential, but drive is, is comes from some concept of some future state that you desire. Mm-hmm. So having a North Star already adds that level of drive and enthusiasm is being excited about what you're doing. Right. And so Simon Sinek does a really good job of talking about your why. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 
And so the, the enthusiasm comes from that and enthusiasm is contagious. And if you have an environment where people are enthusiastic, the outcome is going to be substantially different. You're going to keep those people. Uh, discipline is, I think of discipline as the, as the, the tool out of the handful of things that is you pull out when all everything else fails you, <laughs> you know, like you, you're like, you're feeling a little down, maybe you had a rough day and you get up in the morning and you're like, oh man, I got to deal with this thing or you got to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I use discipline for that. And the military does a really good job, right? They're like, I don't care how you feel and I don't care what your mood is. Get your boots on, get your rifle and let's go hit, you know? Yeah. But they don't say it that e that nicely. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's a little more brutal than that. <laughs> You know, I said I did a TED talk a few years ago and I talked about three things of uh, POV, passion, optimism, visualization. It really fits into what you're. Yeah, exactly. That, my TED talk was about the handful. So it's a yeah. lot. Yeah, it's very. Yeah. You and I share that. It's, I it's part of it. You know, that's part of it. And if you once you have that, you have some fun. Right. Because when it's all said and done, life is about being happy. You know, yes. whatever happiness is, it could be the littlest thing. You know, sometimes we go out and watch birds. Sometimes I go in the sports car or just whatever happiness is. And if you enjoy and relish in those happy things that are around you and take the time, by the way, I say, look up in the sky. How many times do people not look up in the sky? And I'm not talking about seeing a plane come in with a relative. I'm talking about just look up. Yeah. Yeah. See what's up in the trees. Look at those beautiful birds and simple things. And your life starts to really start to come together in a very interesting way. It changes things. Yeah, no, totally. I started meditating about three years ago and I had not realized that I was living my life based on the past and the future and really not enjoying the what was happening on a day to day basis. And it changed everything for me, like moments like now, as I'm talking to you, Gary, I'm very present with you. Right. I'm, I'm here with you. I'm not I'm focusing on this conversation. And I find that that has brought me a lot of a lot of happiness instead of always being focused on the next thing, you know, uh, like Buddha said, you know, the past is history, the future is a mystery and the present is a present. That's why they call it a gift. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so I focus on that and I find it every day, every call, everything I do, it just, it's, it's just more enjoyable. Right. And I think that the, um, you know, the last part of the handful is the optimism, right? Just being optimistic, meaning, that you think you can make this thing happen. So <clears throat> every year I choose some thing that I think is impossible for me. So, you know, I've done things like wrestled a crocodile, bullfighting, I ran a marathon, I rode a bicycle 525 miles. I've climbed 39, 14,000 foot mountains, you know, stuff like this, right? Climbed El Capitan. Um, and I've been doing this since I was 18. And I found that the the optimism is the, is believing that you can do things things that even to you seem like they're impossible, but you've seen other people do them, and you remember that you we all have the same hardware, right? It's just the software that's different. We all have the same brain. We all have the same you know. Mm -hmm. So so you realize that if you program your software to think that you can do something, it really changes your your ability to actually make that happen. You know, what you can believe and conceive, you can achieve kind of thing. Um, I agree 100 percent. I mean, I remember on your show, I was talking about, you know, martial arts classes and uh, yeah. um, 
a Korean uh, grandmaster who couldn't barely speak English. And so I'm going in for my black belt test and he puts a cinder block, cinder block block up. But he, you know, normally you have it on the ground, which is easy, but he said, I have to hold it in one hand and I got to smash it with the other one. Well, try that because your hand moves. <laughs> yeah, you lose a lot of the power, right? Is this April Fool's or whatever? And I remember thinking about it and he was like a very serious guy. So you're talking about a guy started training when he was six years old and he's probably 40 at the time when I met him and he's a world champion at Taekwondo. And he, I'll never forget. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, he said, I said, Master Kwan, he could barely speak English. Mm -hmm. And I said, what is it? And he said, you need to think about being on the other side, only uh -huh. think about being on the other side. And I thought, well, you know, I've wanted a black belt for, you know, 13 years. I put one on the wall when I was a kid. Anyhow, I went out and I did smash through it. And I'll tell you what, Greg, I don't know about you, but when you do exactly what you do, and I do it a lot too, I test myself. Yeah. Really good. Something happens where you understand you still got that. I say it's like having your knife sharp all the time. You know, you can still do it. Totally. Yeah. And you, yeah, exactly. That's a really good way of saying it. You, once you achieve something that you think is impossible, you, you, you say, man, there's a lot more things that are possible than I thought before, because you realize that that is just your, your mind, you know, uh, thinking to, you know, it's analysis to paralysis, you know, yeah. and, and then you realize that, you know, you can actually pull this stuff off. You just have to break it down. And that's what boss does. So I use boss for, I love it. I mean, that is like, and that's it because, and the older you get, I don't know if you notice it, people re reduce their risk and they don't want to think like a child. They don't want to like open themselves up. And part of the reason they start to change is because they start like narrowing their self in. They don't want to explore things anymore. And yeah. Sure, the more you younger you stay. Here's another thing, and I'll tell you. I went out to dinner with the right hand man of Rupert Murdoch, and you know I don't know why they asked me to go. It was at the Palo Alto, but the brother of the founder of Google, uh, Carl Page, was with me, and uh, Andrew Straginski was his right hand man. He's the guy who bought the Wall Street Journal for like four billion, okay. and I'm sitting alongside of him. We had a couple wines, and he said, "I've studied three thousand entrepreneurs," and I said, "What's one thing?" that entrepreneurs, the most successful entrepreneurs have in common, he said, amnesia. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, they never talk about the past. They don't let it anchor them and hold them back. That's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I, when I, when I, this is actually a pretty interesting thing. When I first started running for the mayor, I have asthma, right? So when I first started training for the marathon, I, I think I made it less than a mile, but a year later, I ran 26.2 miles, or actually it turned out to be a lot more because I ended up uh, going on some turns wide because I was so slow, everybody was passing me up. But um, <laughs> yeah, so no, I had a I had a, uh, a a princess run past me that was probably 70 years old and I was like dressed up like a, a princess. And I was just like, I was like, man, you know, I just wanted to make it to the finish line, but you know, you do, right. You make it to the finish line and you realize that if you can do that, something that is really inherently physically or, or mentally difficult for you, that you could do a lot of other things that aren't nearly as difficult. You I know? agree. And if you, but if you don't keep it sharp, if you don't continually test yourself, you lose the edge and it's harder to get back. If you lose it for a while, 
or you give up, it's harder to get it back. It's not like you can do one more thing. You've got to do several things, at least I do, to get it back. So I always try to keep the edge sharp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, you have to. Yeah, it's very, very true. You have to. There is a level of maintenance and then there is a level of stretch. You know, there's the level of maintenance is just keep on your game. And then the stretch is like in order to maintain the, main, the, the high water mark, you have to push yourself over where you're comfortable just to maintain the high water mark that you set already. You know, I, went, do, do, I don't know if you remember Sun Microsystems. Uh, yeah, ago. So I had lunch with Scott McNeely about two years ago. And I remember him one time telling me a, a story about, you know, always go to the areas that you fear the most because you're going to learn the most. Uh, and I had, so I had lunch and I reiterated that to him. We're sitting around, we're laughing. But uh, it's true because if you do that, those areas that you fear the most, you learn a lot and it changes you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you. It, it's interesting that you you don't see the world through, you see the world through a lens. And the more you sort of stretch your understanding of things, the more color you see. You know, yeah, you're, I agree you know I mean? 100%. And, you know, the older we get, the, the you know, the, the lenses change because we change them because we change ourselves. We want to take the risk. We don't explore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming up to the top of the hour. Question for you. So we have startups, entrepreneurs from all over the world. If you would give them advice on to be successful. I know we talked a lot of things. What's one thing that you would tell them that's critically important? to achieve success from your perspective? I, there, I would say that the handful, so focus, drive, enthusiasm, discipline, and optimism. And then I would say, start with the end in mind, like understand what success looks like to you before you even start. I think that that's really important, not just for boss and the business stuff, but also, you know, putting that in your brain. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, there there is a lot of science behind the fact that if you say something, you're listening, you know, and I had this uh, Deepak Chopra who I, I, I got to spend a little time with, you know, he said, so if you don't believe that your mind hears everything in programs that he says, don't think about a carrot, just don't think about a carrot. And he's like, what's the first thing you thought of? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, so Teresa said, you know, it's not about uh, stop words, pro peace, right? And so you got to really like, reprogram yourself and, and you, you know, you're hundred percent white and you got to go down through, and that part of it, I call it painting pictures in your mind. You got to mm -hmm. paint the pictures. And I don't know if you're like me, Greg, but I don't always tell people about the pictures I paint because when I tell them, they don't believe it. Right. Yeah, They're totally. Like, oh. Absolutely. Yeah. People yeah think like, come crazy. on, don't tell me the BS. It's like, come on. But when you do it, it's like, oh, I can't believe it. And yeah. so that's nah, amazing. In fact, I just had it happen. You know, I wanted to get the mayor, you know, everybody's talking about people leaving Silicon Valley and going to Miami. So I just before the call got the mayor of Miami Beach to agree to be on the show next week. And so here's awesome. something I visualize. So it's it is incredible. You know, Greg, I want to tell you, it's you know, it's a it's a great honor to have you on the show. And I appreciate you taking your time. Where can people reach you if they want to get in boss? How do they get involved with it? And what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, my uh, website is GregoryShepherd.com. Um, and then there's bossstartupscience.com for the school and boss capital partners. If you are raising capital, that's where the, that's where the fund is. All right. Super. So I want to say thank you again. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. 
it's greatly appreciated and I look forward to future conversations with you. I look forward to working with you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. All, all the same. Thank you so all much. Right. All right. See you later. Okay, bye. Okay, for the second part of the show, I've got Lorenz Apieris from Cologne and uh, family office, Blockwell, invest in cryptocurrency, an amazing guy. And uh, with that, I'd like to bring him on board. Lorenz, Hi, good Gary. to see you. Hey, how are you? Uh, good. I'm tired. It's freezingly cold in Germany, but... Uh, um, it's okay. The year has started well, so I can't actually, I cannot complain at all. Oh, you can't beat that. You know, I talked to a guy, Lorenz, I know you're in crypto and I talked to a guy yesterday, Karam, uh, from, uh, he's a, one of the Bitcoin whales and I've never heard anybody in my life that had been up like $5 billion in like day, you know I mean? I'm like, I like, this is crazy. I, I was telling him, about um, you know the this company uh, Click Software that I was involved in was sold for uh, a little over a billion, but I felt funny telling them because it's, it did it a couple hours, right? Yeah, it's, it was a ridiculous move yesterday, but I mean it was uh, like putting oil into a fire of something that has been burning for a while. So um, some say what it was in, inevitable. Um, I mean, having been in this for more than seven years. I've seen a lot and what, what is the one constant when it comes uh, to crypto um, and the whole ecosystem, the people behind it have such a strong persistent and believe, persistence and believe in what they're doing. And as an investor in this space, this is, I mean, I, I'm sure you can confirm that, but this is something that you really want to see because pairing vision with persistence uh, is everything you need um, because it, everything takes time. Well, you know, and that's what he's told me. He was, it was amazing. So he said, you know, Gary, he said, people didn't believe me. They said, we're, you know, drug addicts and all this kind of stuff. And here's from a very uh, proper Indian family lives in Dubai and not only did invest in Bitcoin, but many of the other uh, uh, Ethereum, actually every one of them, he said. So <laughs> FYI. and, you know, it was, it was just an amazing conversation. And, and um, so, Talk a little bit about uh, Blockwall. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you're working on today. Now, and I have a question. You know, it said your family's in rheological testing. Yeah. I mean, I tried to find it. I mean, maybe I missed something. What is that? <laughs> so um, it, it's it's really a, a strong part of my, what I would call entrepreneurial DNA today, the way I grew up. So um, in my family, we Everyone was an entrepreneur um, for generations. Companies have been built. And uh, when I grew up, uh, the big entrepreneur was my, my grandfather, who was a, a procedural engineer. And he was, in the 60s, he saw that plastics had become the, the big thing that will drive a major part of the Industrial Revolution. And he uh, engineered lab devices that would measure the function, the, the flow index, so the, the functionality and the other parameters for plastics and rubber. So this is a, on one side, a boring lab equipment, but it's so crucial for plastic producers, for plastic processing companies. 
And out of this 20,000 uh, people village that I grew up in, where he decided to go to build his company because there was a lot of subsidies, um, he grew it into a, a world market leader in the space. And today you cannot find any plastic producer or plastic processing company that would not use such a, such a machine from this company or any of the competitors in order to for a solid product. Well, so this is, is that like a Fortune 500 size, or how big is the company? Uh, well, in 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 Germany, would you would call it the Mittelstand, which is the the backbone of the backbone of the German uh, industry. It, it's it's a it's a good sized company, and um, the interesting part about it, it facilitates so many other industries. So my father actually used one of those companies, uh, one of those machines to develop its own plastic, which is now a, a leading um, ink in the th professional 3D printing industry. So, uh, I mean, a lot of stuff could be derived from that. But why I mentioned that also is like our dinner table conversations were around how is the business doing? How are people doing? How do we grow this? How do we sell to China? How do we sell to the US? Uh, we have a subsidiary in North South Carolina. Uh, so how, how do we address various markets? So this was my dinner table conversation, basically. Wow. And well, that, well, that's okay. it sounds like a board meeting. Yeah, like in retros, I, at the time, I, I was kind of bored uh, about it. But the more I grew up, the more business sense I developed. And today I realized like how crucial that has been for my like intrinsic development. Like everything we do as investors today is basically answering the, and working on these um, questions. So... As, and, and probably that same spirit uh, gave me that light bulb moment when uh, I, I came across Bitcoin in 2014 and um, like at some point realized there's more to it than just uh, doing some uh, short selling or long trading on Kraken at the time. And uh, yeah, this is how, how the whole thing developed around uh, developing block wall. Uh, but I can go more into that if you want as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. Now tell us a little, because I was going to ask you the next question is, tell us a little bit about block wall and, and you know, what, you, what you're trying to achieve and, and where yeah. you are. So originally, like after university in, in, in Germany and uh, my master's in St. Andrews in Scotland, I wanted to go into business consulting, but like the entrepreneurial part, then working with my father was something that has always driven me. So when I, when I was working in Zurich um, and I came across Bitcoin, there was always this thing about Bitcoin, like people don't get it. I, it took me a while to get it. And so deploying uh, an investment strategy into that over time, and then there was this, uh, this point in time where like, I got calls like once, twice a week from people around me asking like, hey, Lawrence, how do I buy it? How do I store it? What's Kraken? Can I trust this venue? Like, like simple questions, um, but like they were necessary to gain access. So I sat together with two university friends and uh, we, we, we thought like, how can we create a product to, to fill that gap that's obvious, obviously existing in the market? And we ventured out, it took us six months and three law firms to find a legal and regulatory structure that would address um, the needs that we saw for the European markets. And what we ended up doing is creating a, a closed fund structure uh, under the German SEC um, regulations. Mm. Because for us, like having had this experience with Bitcoin, etc., we wanted to make it very easy for investors to get exposure. So regulatory and legal questions should have been out of the, uh, 
not relevant. So the core question uh, should have been like, do I want to have exposure and do I want to have it with Blockwall? So this is how we ended up raising our first fund within three and a half months and started deploying right after that. What? Three and a half months you raised the fund? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, and when I had the discussion yesterday with Karam, he was telling me, you know, people thought I was doing illicit stuff because they didn't understand the bit. Is that true? Did you feel the same way? They were like trying to figure out what the real deal is? <laughs> well, yeah, of course. So the question that always pops up is like, but doesn't it use so much energy and isn't it used for, to finance terrorists? So that question always comes up. But I mean, it's an easy, to, easy one to answer that. Like looking back uh, to 2016, early 2017, most questions were related around like, I really want to understand how Bitcoin works. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took me a while to, to talk to investors in a different manner to tell them like what, it, what the effect is and not how it works. Like, and because I asked, I counter asked like, do you know how the internet that you use every day works? And like, no one knew it. So I, I told them. Ask them about a cell phone. Ask them how a cell phone received calls, right? It's pretty simple. Exactly. I mean, where, where are the, well, you know, it has, uh, you know, it's getting some that's wireless transmit. Where exactly? It's Yeah, yeah exactly. So we, we, we trimmed down our narrative. We pitched differently. And ultimately, the investors that we found, and you must know the VC, land, VC investor landscape in, in Germany and German-speaking countries, which were our target group for the first fund, they're not as avid uh, to invest into VC topics as you would find that in, in North America. So the pitch was a lot more difficult. But we found some that had high worth individuals, single family offices, one trust, who understood there's this, they got this ticklish feeling uh, about this topic and they wanted to participate and they just trusted us. So this was really our origin story around the first fund. And, very, and, and we built that around the thesis because we only invested in token. Um, there's value behind these decentralized networks that will mature into actual applications. And then two years in uh, to the fund, um, or actually one year in, we saw applications arising. So uh, we conceptualized our second fund that we're about to do our first closing on that is complementary to the first one and invests in early stage startups that are using blockchain as one of their tools to build better B2B enterprise solutions. Uh, because at that level, the value creation is not on a token, but on an equity level, because they're creating revenue by selling it against euros or dollar contracts. So we built that and we've been raising for that. And I mean, the momentum in particular in these days is, is very good. And what we also found in, in, in Europe is that corporates are very, very interested in this. They are the, also the core target group for the solutions that we see that are being built. So uh, we used uh, the pandemic times, which was a bit of a blocker in terms of fundraising to really think like, what do we need as a platform uh, to, to be better suited to invest and also create value down the road? So we teamed up with a, a Canadian uh, group around Don and Alex Tapscott, who um, developed the Blockchain Research Institute, and we built the European um, hub for that in order to be the research education and then also value creation bridge for European corporates. 
Because at the end of the day, you want to be something like uh, Tinder. You want to whis hear the whispers of the corporates. You want to see what's being built on the startup level, and you want to do matchmaking. Mm -hmm. So we build that, and as a platform, uh, we, we feel very well positioned. Uh, we, we see it from the responses of, again, very difficult to raise topic uh, around venture capital, that this in particular is something that's of interest and that uh, corporates and uh, family offices are keen to invest in. And that's what we do. And we build, we've built many great relationships with LPs. A lot of them uh, want to invest because they uh, want to co-invest for strategic and financial reasons. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not telling anything new to you, but I mean, as a for being sort of a niche investor only focused on blockchain um i, I think we've come quite a quite a long way and also what's uh, unfolding at the moment is when we talk when we look at the solutions that are being built using this technology they're industry agnostic so we speak to so many different people for so many different reasons and that makes uh, our work so fascinating and interesting as well uh, that sounds great and where do you find the companies and what kind of companies are you looking for today? Like I know you said blockchain, but where are you looking for those companies? So um, we have three different approaches. I mean, obviously, there is a bunch of uh, deal inflow that comes naturally. Uh, we screen that. And then uh, the, the second and third uh, more important pillars are our outreach. So we have done a lot of research. We have a strong opinion on which areas we find uh, where this technology and the supporting solutions create value within the fund's lifetime, which is within the next 10 years. Um, so we look actively looking for that. And I'm going a bit into how we do that as well. And then the third pillar is really the network that we've built over the past seven years of investors that appreciate our knowledge of uh, the technology and uh, look for us uh, as a co-lead, as a, an early stage investor where they could then um, come in at a later round because we're focused on pre-seed seed uh, predominantly. And most investors that are looking, VC investors that are looking at blockchain would typically um, start to invest uh, on a series A level. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of outreach, um, so the second pillar, Within our uh, the, the think tank, the Blockchain Research Institute Europe, um, we are also conceptualizing a build program where we are looking for solutions together with corporate partners that are then being promoted to attract talent to exactly uh, center around those uh, solutions that can be built and financed. Now, how does it work? So you got the corporate partner. Are they looking for a specific technology? And what are you, an enabler? Or how does that work? So that, like to put it very simply, they come to us and they say, well, we have a few issues. First, we need to identify where these uh, solutions, no matter whether they're uh, based on blockchain related, AI related or anything, whether any of these solutions make sense to us in order to improve our status quo or be a potential positive disruptor to our status quo. So that's that's where we work together. And based on that, we listen to the whispers on where they are most um, willing to to look uh, to test solutions and then obviously we match that with the deals we see and the solutions that are being built and uh, to create pilots and uh, potential first customer interactions and when i speak about corporates um, some of the most agile ones are um, some of the largest ones in europe 
So that's that's quite positive to see. Um, predominantly in uh, like old old economies, uh, manufa uh, auto manufacturing, telecommunication, and also energy, um, which is very interesting because they've realized well our processes are digital already, and how can we automate them? And at the end of the day, blockchain provides for a trustless automation of already digital processes. And that's where we, we bridge the gap and then translate it into other industries where that solution also works. Now, what about, you know, sometimes, and I worked in uh, Germany a bit, and we have a couple of German companies in our portfolio. How is it, you know, the one thing, so the German startups were saying, oh, the German corporations don't understand, you know, the, we need the Silicon Valley mentality. What is it, you know, is that true or is it a misinterpretation? Are they as aggressive and as, um, you know, is open to these novel ideas or what is it like? So if you deal with a Siemens or you deal with a, you know, Porsche or whatever, whatever group, how are they to deal with? Yeah, I mean, the, the common misconception that everyone in Germany looks like a Bavarian wearing Lederhosen and drinking beer is uh, equally wrong as that assumption. Well, for today, in the past, that was certainly true because a German engineer's mentality would say, I'm going to build a perfect product. And when I think it's perfect, we're starting to sell it whilst the Silicon Valley, Valley mentality has the, has the MVP approach. And German corporates, in particular, the larger ones, they either have hubs in Silicon Valley, they have innovation departments that are completely open, that are completely um, free to look what makes sense. And they have usually uh, executive level uh, access to implement that. So a lot has changed, and that certainly ties in with the fact that uh, when we talk about Web 2.0, um, German corporates were certainly laggards in terms of uh, ad uh, adopting innovation. And this is also this is put very generally, and there's certainly exceptions to that. Um, but to put it in a, in a general frame, yes. But this has changed, uh, and I'm very happy about that. We, had, we just had a discussion with uh, Bosch and who have an office out in Silicon Valley, and they seem to be very progressive. But it, it's just interesting that some of the German startups still say that, by the way. So it's really, yeah. their opinion is, you know, so the, the what's real is not what they think. It's a, it's a bit different. What about the check size? The other said, they said about valuations, if you do get a German uh, VC, the valuations uh, aren't as high. Is that true? Or how does that work? Are they more conservative, they said? Yes, I, I'd say, um, well, I'm, I'm looking at, at statistical averages now, and I would say that valuations across Europe typically are lower than in North America. Uh, and that also relates to the fact that um, at early stages, the funds available are less. So, uh, and yeah, and most startups are firstly focused on their local market as opposed to the general European market. Um, but that's also changing, in particular in when we look at those blockchain startups that we're seeing, because the products they're building are essentially global products. That's they don't have a regional focus. So the the funding that we're looking at is very comparable to um, North American valuations and ticket sizes. Uh, I've, like talking averages in euro terms, uh, like dollar terms a million for a seed round, uh, 400K for a pre-seed round, one and a half to two initially for a, a Series A round to get some 10% um, equity of the company. 
Oh, that's great. That's the same. What about China? Do you have Chinese? Are you dealing with any Chinese blockchain companies or Asian companies, or is it just Europe? So on the first fund where we invested in uh, decentralized protocols, we've invested around the globe. Um, I mean, investing in token basically means investing around the globe. And um, on, on the second fund, we have a strong European focus because this is where we can create most value. Having said that, we have partners around North America and Asia, in particular China and South Korea, where we are the partner when it comes to being a co-lead because the product that's being invested in is primed to enter the European market. And vice versa, when we have a European product, we want to get uh, the other investors on board to expand those companies into the respective, respective markets as well. And when it comes to uh, venture capital in this space, the collaborative um, mindset is very strong. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I have regular update calls with various uh, partner funds around the globe to uh, see what deal flow has come in that's of interest and how can we can work together, how we can create value. Uh, because net-net, um, it's beneficial to everyone. No, got it. So we're coming up to the top of the hour, and I just wanted to, you know, so we have startups and entrepreneurs all over the world. Can you talk about what you're looking for today uh, and and uh, how they get a hold of you? And, and um, you know, the last thing, well, if you have one piece of advice for a startup entrepreneur that's in blockchain, what would you have? So if you could start off with... Uh, you know, a little bit of summary and, and then move over to what you think in terms of. Uh... So we're, we're uh, mostly looking for applications uh, in the financial industry and industry agnostic, uh, for example, supply chain solutions where um, the plugin API based adoption is very near term uh, so that we can create value within the, the funds lifetime. Um, we're also looking at crypto-centric uh, startups that are crucial for the, the further development of this ecosystem. Um, Pre-seed seed is our prime entry point. This is where we're best at. And um, you can reach us on our website, blockwall.capital. You can send us your deck at pitch at blockwall.capital. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Lawrence Apiarius. And... Um, what, what I personally really love within uh, entrepreneurial teams or individual entrepreneurs is this, this burning vision and persistence that even I, that, that, and he has to sell me his, his idea to, for me to get my money. At the end of the day, I'm just a challenging counterpart. Um, the, the entrepreneur is always uh, the first person that needs to drive and to be convinced that his vision uh, and uh, the more disruptive it is, uh, it is, the more vision is needed, is the one that prevails. And we're just here to support that uh, in every way we can. And because that reminds me of what I saw in my grandfather. I mean, building a, a, a world market leader in an industry that didn't exist at the time I mean, you need stamina for that and uh, need to look back to learn from your, from your faults. But at the end of the day, just uh, looking up and looking forward is what needs a good company in order to thrive. Yeah, looking up and looking forward. No, it's forward, forward all the way. Persistent. And smiling. It's <laughs> great. Lawrence, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We, we greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing conversations. and. Um, you know, let's keep in touch. And thank you again. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me.
Take bye. Care. Take care. Bye. So I want to thank everybody for joining us today for another time. GST Venture Studios presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. We have an incredible guest next week. We have the mayor of Miami Beach coming on. And uh, we also have some representatives on Tuesday from Indonesia. So we're going to have a special event on Thursday of next week with the mayor of Miami Beach and why Miami Beach is a place for tech companies to relocate to. So thank you very much. Stay tuned. Great seeing you. And thanks for joining the show.